1: If you wonder whether humans know how to behave, well, a look at the news might be discouraging. He was lying to me, straight to my face,
2: and you can see the manner of the lie. You can see he goes into lying mode.
1: A Florida man
3: walked into a convenience store with a four-foot alligator and tried to trade it for a 12-pack
4: of beer on Tuesday.
5: Actor Tom Selleck of Magnum PI fame has been accused of stealing water from the state of California.
4: We lie, cheat, steal, and commit even worse atrocities every day all over the world. And yet some say that our ethical standards are stronger today than ever. We are better behaved than our ancestors. I'm Molly Bentley.
1: And I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Big Picture Science. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology and in this hour, a look at what drives human morality, whether we've made any progress in being people of principle, and whether all our efforts at self-improvement will be for naught when the machines take over. Will we be able to build robots that know right from wrong? And will they listen to us? In computing, there's something called Moore's Law. And this is the observation made by technologist Gordon Moore that about every 18 months or so, the number of transistors you can cram onto a computer chip doubles. In other words, computing power at any given price point doubles about every two years. And this is because the transistors are getting smaller and smaller. So the chips are getting smarter and smarter. Now, so far, this exponential arc, Moore's Law, has continued to be valid.
4: Some say that our moral behavior follows a kind of Moore's law. We are increasingly improving our treatment of one another, a kind of morals law. Now we realize you need only to look out your window to raise an eyebrow at this suggestion.
3: Everyone is still sleeping. I don't think my neighbor will mind if I borrow his newspaper. Oh, and his cat. And is that a brand new BMW?
1: I mean, suspicious behavior abounds.
4: And yet, Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptic Magazine, is so inspired by our trend toward increasing virtue that he's written The Moral Arc. The title comes from Minister Theodore Parker and was made famous by Martin Luther King in a speech when he said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The reason for our ever-better behavior, says Dr. Shermer, the development of science and reason...
1: Michael, you make the case that we're living in the most moral time in history, but tragedy seems to rule the news, so how can this be the most
2: moral time? The headlines, of course, that's their job is to report the bad news that happens, and there's always going to be enough of that that it will fill the evening news. So there'll be no shortage, and it'll always look like things are are worse than they've ever been. But, in fact, if you follow the trend lines, so just start with, say, the abolition of slavery, the abolition of judicial torture, the expansion of civil rights and civil liberties to blacks and women and now same-sex marriage and gays and animal rights and, uh, you know, across the board um, – As I like to say, conservatives are more liberal today than liberals were in the 1950s. Okay, But I mean, you know, you're comparing it to a
1: time that was a half century ago. But how do you know that this is a more moral time than – I don't know, maybe the Roman Empire or maybe uh, the time of the pharaohs. I mean,
2: are we more moral? Um, I think so. In, in my criteria is the um, survival and flourishing of sentient beings. That's my starting point. And uh, by that, I mean that evolution vouchsafed us with a human nature that desires to survive and flourish. And more of us in more places and greater percentages of in any time in history are surviving and flourishing. The ancient Romans, the ancient Egyptians, you know, very few people lived in prosperity and had autonomy and freedom. Almost everybody was dirt poor all the way up until really the 1800s, and then things really started to take off. So, by the way, I'm only tracking moral progress in the moral arc. Of course, there's lots of other measures of, you know, if for nothing else, dentistry would be a good reason to be alive today rather than any time in the past or any (laughs) of the medical conditions that you could have had. So, but just in terms of like the chances of you dying violently, you and I as males, young males, well, okay, we're we're not so young males, but the chances of you and I dying violently would have been about a hundredfold higher in the Middle Ages than today. That is, rates of homicides were between a 100 and a 1,000 per 100,000 in the Middle Ages. They're about 1 per 100,000 in Europe and about 8 per 100,000 in America. And so that has changed dramatically in the centuries, even just like since the 1990s. You know, the crime rates and homicide rates have drastically declined. Now, What has this got to do with morality? Well, again, what are the chances of you and I living a fulfilling life now versus 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago? There's never been a better time to be alive today. And all the polls, Pew polls, Gallup polls show that more people are willing to accept people that are different from them, gays, blacks, Jews, and so forth. And so much of that has to do with to what extent um, we are willing to embrace people that are not a member of our immediate tribe, people that are different from us.
1: I'm going to push this one more step, though. What about this ideal we have of existence, the kind of bucolic, carefree, or certainly crime-free existence that our ancestors had on the savannas, I don't know, 50,000, 100,000 years ago? Maybe, maybe things were better then. Maybe they, you know, had this concern for the environment
2: that we always picture of <laughs> cultures not corrupted by modern lifestyles. I call it the myth of the beautiful people. Long, long ago, in a century far, far away, people lived in harmony with their environment and peace and... You know, the, Well, so this group of people that believes this, these anthropologists that believe this, they're called the Peace and Harmony Mafia because they're really very aggressive about enforcing this view of human nature. In fact, most of the archaeological evidence and anthropological evidence now points to the fact that our ancestors were far more violent. You know, I gave you that statistic of, you know, 100 to 1,000 times more likely to die violently. Well, it would be tens of thousands of times more likely to die violently in the hunter-gatherer Paleolithic. In some communities, it's estimated that as many as one out of four, 25% of young men, and died violently in the Paleolithic, and and they have this from skeletons, skeletons with their uh, skulls crushed in with big gaping holes, arrows stuck through the face, you know, spear points in the sternum, spears and ribs, and you've probably seen the ones, uh, you know, the bog men up in uh, Sweden and Norway, you know, with the ropes around their neck, and the skull bashed in, and an arrow through his chest, just for good measure. You know, and these weren't, you know, like superstitious ritual killings to the gods. A, a lot of them were just violent deaths from conflict. All right. Well, maybe we ought to, just for the record here,
1: ask you what your definition of morality is. I, I can hear that Part of it is not being killed
2: by your fellow man. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good start, actually. If you think about it, I mean, I don't care if my neighbors love me or not. I just want them to leave me alone. Don't kill me. That's a good start, actually, for society. So the whole point of a civil society and a state based on the rule of law is to get people to play nice by the rules and quit killing each other. Now, initially, when states implemented this, the so-called Leviathan argument, the Leviathan's you know was the heavy hand was to stop people from killing each other. That is, justice is going to happen one way or the other, either through self. Help justice in the middle of the night where people are settling their scores or through civil court and state justice through the courts. And so initially there was a decline of violence from states taking over that job of enforcing justice. Then some states got a heavy hand on this. So the death penalty was allocated for 220 different crimes in the 1700s in America and England. 220 different crimes. You could be capital punishment, including robbing a rabbit warren. Pickpocketing. Wait, or, but wait, 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 wait! Robbing a rabbit warren. Yeah. Are you are you taking the rabbits? Or are yeah. you taking their wealth? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, because somebody owns the rabbits and they need them. You are stealing their wealth. But my favorite, of course, is insulting the king or queen. You know, death penalty. Well, the death penalty is now on death row. I'm projecting by 2025, 25, 20, 20, 30 or so, the death penalty will be gone. Not even in the United States. Most people on death row today in in America die of old age. All right. I'm going to buy into this, that uh, we do live in the most moral of times, but you attribute this to the rise of science, right? I do, right. Uh, the scientific revolution gave immediate rise to scholars and thinkers in all fields modeling themselves after Galileo and Newton and William Harvey. Thomas Hobbes, for example, wrote The Leviathan. It's considered by political scientists to be the most important political track ever written. It is a thoroughgoing scientific work. But the point is, is that everybody wanted to be the Newton of their time the Galileo of their time. Hobbes called himself the Galileo of of his time. The French physiocrats patterned the the study of the economy after William Harvey's circulation of blood through a body was like the flow of currency through an economy. Some things block the flow of currency, and that can cause disease of our economy. So they were the laissez-faire. That's where they coined this term. We should keep the government out of the economy because it blocks the smooth flow of capital. Even if you don't agree with that, the idea is that the world is knowable, there are principles and natural laws we can understand, which is what Newton showed, and that we can apply them to solving problems. But, but wait a minute. On the one hand, you have you know the sciences, where you do experiments,
1: you have theories, you, know, you prove uh, the existence of the electron and stuff like that. On the other hand, you have the social sciences, which seem all too eager to adopt the methodologies of science. But can you give me an example where some specific scientific result... Resulted in the
2: abolition of slavery, for example, or Mm -hmm. some other Mm -hmm. moral improvement? Mm -hmm. Sure. First of all, democracy is a kind of scientific experiment. Uh, It's a way of like tweaking the variables and changing it and running the experiment for a while, collecting some data, see how it goes, tweak the variables again and run it for a few more years. Those things are called elections. Throw the bums out, bring some new bums in, and see how it goes. (laughs) Jefferson called the American experiment. An experiment, and he meant that in a naturalistic way, that we're running experiments. The abolition of slavery is a good example because most people just assume it was religion that was primarily responsible for the abolition of slavery. And, of course, the Quakers, the Mennonites, William Wilberforce in the um, the English uh, parliament who was an Anglican, yeah, they deserve credit for doing what they did. But their primary objectors, the people that fought it, were their fellow Christians, their fellow Anglicans, their fellow Quakers, who were all totally in support of slavery and cited biblical support. So if you actually look at the arguments that even the Quakers made, they were arguments for rights, natural rights, that people don't deserve to be treated as separate species or subhuman. They should be treated equally, where does that idea come from? It comes from John Locke and Immanuel Kant and these enlightenment philosophers. And we call them philosophers, but if they live today, we'd say they're doing science. They're scientists. They're trying to construct a naturalistic worldview to explain cause and effect relationships in the social world. And from this, they deduce that, you know, people have natural rights. They're born with them and so forth. That's a purely scientific argument, I claim. Michael, you're kind of an upbeat guy. <laughs> You've come to the, the bookshelves of, uh, of, the, of the world, if, if there are many of those. You've come with good news. I think so. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I'm an optimist by nature, but I'm not just making an optimistic argument for the fun of it. I, I think we should figure out what we've been doing right because we have been doing something right for centuries, and we should do more of that. Identify the cause and effect relationships between this and that and do more of it. You know, 20 years ago or something like that, uh,
1: the Club of Rome, I believe it was, oh, yes. was predicting what the the near-term future was going to be like, and it was a pretty dismal picture. Yeah, it didn't uh, happen. It didn't happen. So given your point of view in this book, you know, if I were born in 2050, would
2: I then be living in the most moral time in you history? Would. yeah. You would look back at the debates we're having now, like on same-sex marriage, and think, what were those people thinking? Are you kidding me? In exactly the same way that we look back in the 1950s, in 1959, only 4% of Americans supported interracial marriage. Interracial marriage. Remember that debate? No, I don't either because, you know, I was too young then. And no one thinks about that now. No one talks about it. It's not in the news. There's, uh, pollsters like Pew and Gallup, they stopped asking the question in the late 80s because the answer was, well, whatever, dude. Who cares? A lot of people will argue that this
1: turn, if you will, towards a more moral society is due to the imprecations of our religious beliefs, that
2: religion has turned us into kinder, gentler folk. Well, I'm fond of saying about religion what uh, Winston Churchill said about Americans: You can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> Religions do get on board with uh, with rights revolutions; they absolutely do, and they have a you know they have a good network system and they rally the troops to support the cause better than anybody else. But they're not the originators of it, and you can see this in the same-sex marriage rights revolution. It, it was opposed by virtually all religious groups, with the exception of the Episcopalians and a few other small groups and a couple of ministers here. Here and there that performed gay marriages, but everybody else was against it. Now they're all rapidly coming around. Even Dr. Martin Luther King, who inspired the title of my book with his How Long, Not Long, Because the arc of the Moral Universe is Long, But It Bends Towards Justice. Okay. Even he said in his autobiography, his primary influences were Gandhi, and his list of theologians that he read were the most liberal theologians, those that embraced liberal values, Western liberal values. Michael Shermer. Thank you so much for a very uh, encouraging conversation. (laughs) Thanks.
4: Michael Shermer is publisher of Skeptic Magazine and the author of The Moral Arc, How Science and Reason Lead Humanity Toward Truth, Justice, and Freedom. So if we keep up this trend in good behavior, what will our ethos be in 2050? Just how moral can we be?
1: Life is
3: good, Bob, sitting here.
1: Sure is, Bob. Not a care in the world. I hear in the old days, the news was always depressing.
3: Yep. The atrocities people committed then. Uh, Remember war? Sweatshops? Non-vegan lattes?
1: I don't, but my grandpappy spoke of it. You know, at night, he locked his doors. What? What if a stranger needed cash? Or a widescreen TV? They got a job.
3: They squandered their leisure under an oppressive power hierarchy.
4: Hi, Bob. Hey, Bob.
3: Hey, hey Bob. Bob. Are you thirsty? You want some water? Sure, but there isn't... Uh, no, don't worry about it. There's no microbe-killing chlorine in this water. The oldest life form on Earth didn't needlessly die for this H2O.
1: The anti-chlorine law shut down the treatment plant just two years ago, but I'm kind of getting used to the, uh, viscosity. Kind of
3: miss the days of beer, though. <laughs> Not me. Drunk people got into all kinds of debauchery. Bar fights, cow tipping, chest hair extensions.
4: Hey, Bob. Hey, Bob. Hey, Bob.
1: Well, I will say that things sure got easier after the name discrimination lawsuits in the 2040s when the government decided that everyone should have the same name. Hey, can I show you something? Sure. I found this behind a door in the basement left by the previous owners. At first, I didn't know what it was, but don't tell anyone. Okay, I promise. Oh, what is it? I had to look it up online. It's a fly swatter.
4: Oh. According to Michael Shermer, exercising our prefrontal cortex is what led us to develop ethical habits. But what about expressing the needs of our limbic system? Doesn't anyone plan ahead?
3: Has no thought been given to the needs of this community? What kind of human being
1: are you? Uh,
4: I don't know about that, sir. We just ran out of ginger ale. Can I get you a root beer? Yeah, that's
1: okay. Why emotions may not always be logical, but are still the drivers of our moral behavior.
4: It's Morals Law on Big Picture Science.
0: So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Michael Shermer argues that the use of our executive function, our higher order reasoning, together with the development of science and rational thought, are what have led us to become better behaved.
4: But psychologist David DeSteno says that while we may be persuaded by reason, we are moved by emotion. Logic and willpower can only go so far in reigning in bad behavior. It's the welling up of emotion that drives us to treat others better, even though emotions typically
6: get a bad rap. The current view hasn't much changed since Spinoza put forth the idea of centuries ago that emotions, passions carry people away and, and lead them to act in, in immoral ways, and it's only rationality and reason that pull us back and uh, help us find our, our better angels.
4: All right, but you would not argue that emotion doesn't sometimes carry us away and lead no. us to
6: all sorts of no. What I'm No, what I'm arguing for is that reason, cognition, analysis, however you might want to call it, and emotion both can lead us to vice and virtue. And where we often go wrong is is assuming that reason and rationality always lead to virtue and emotion always leads to vice. Both can lead in both directions. And if we don't recognize that, we're setting ourselves up for failure.
4: So earlier in the show, we heard the argument that as a species, humans behave more morally now than in any time of in history, and that the fundamental driver of that has been the pursuit of scientific thought and reason, and in, in other words, the development of rationality. And it sounds as though you're saying that's not the only reason we're <laughs> better behaved now than our
6: ancestors. No, that is certainly not the only reason. I mean, to you know, refer to it to the old adage: there's a very small difference between rational and rationale, one letter and you know we do experiments in my lab all the time where we show that it's rationality that can lead people to to cheat and behave in immoral ways because they can justify for themselves why it's okay for them and underlying that there's actually emotional impulses that are pushing them to behave in the moral way that reason kind of tamps down and overrides.
4: Well, let's talk about the role of emotions and how it guides us towards better behavior in a moment. But I wonder if you could just briefly summarize one of those experiments in your lab, which you discovered that people can rationalize. People who are good people generally can rationalize almost any kind of behavior.
6: Sure. Well, imagine this. You come into my lab and we tell you, There are two tasks that need to be done. One is short and fun. One is really long and onerous. We described to you what those are, but you don't need to know that now. And here's a coin. We want you to flip the coin, and um, it will tell you which one you get to do. And whichever one you don't get to do, the person sitting outside who you just passed will get stuck doing. We then leave subjects alone. Of course, we watch them on hidden video, but they don't know that. Now, what percentage of people do you think actually flip the coin?
4: Well, I... I, I know what the answer is but because I've read your work, but I would, <laughs> okay. say, I would say everyone does because you know, you're know you flipping a coin. It's the right thing to do. That, yeah, that is my impulse to say everyone
6: flips the coin. That's right. And if we ask people, what should you do in this case? One hundred It's one of the few times I ever find unanimous answers in, in psychological research. Everybody says, flip the coin. 90% of them don't flip the coin. Or to be more accurate, 90% of them either assign themselves a good task or they kind of flip the coin and then... Flip the coin again until they get the answer they want, which is kind of like not <laughs> flipping the coin. And so, what they the outcome that they want
4: is they want the coin flipped so that they get out of the, the onerous task, whatever it is, and they are assigned the easier task.
6: That's right. They want by they assign themselves um, the task that is. 10 minutes in fun as opposed to the 45-minute task that is long and onerous exactly.
4: Okay. So they might not flip the coin, but they'll just say to you, I got the easy task. The, the coin the right. coin flip was in my favor. Okay.
6: Right, okay. right. They're all doing this on computer, and the, the coin flip is actually a virtual coin flip on the computer. Um, but th- as far as they're concerned, they're not going to see us again. They just hit the button for which task they were assigned by the coin. And so if you ask them afterward, how fairly did you act? Most of them say, yeah, I acted fairly. But if you have them watch somebody else do this, so we have an actor that they can watch do this, who they believe is another subject in the experiment, they'll condemn him for it, even though it was the same thing that they themselves would do. Now, you might say, well, okay, that's interesting, but how do I know what role emotion is playing and what role reason is playing? So we do the experiment again, but this time before we ask them how fairly did you act, we... Put them under what's called a cognitive load manipulation and all that really is is a fancy term psychologists use for occupying people's minds so that they can engage in reasoning and planning and so we ask you to remember seven digits that are random because the human memory working memory can hold about seven items so imagine this you're sitting at my computer and the string of digits comes up that says seven six five three seven two one and so you have to remember those while you're answering the question. So you're going 765 how fairly did I act? 765, uh, I think I acted. And you give me an answer, and then you have to write the digits down. What that does is it prevents your mind from engaging in rational analysis and reason. When we do that, and we ask you, how fairly did you act, people condemn their own actions as much as they condemn somebody else. Hypocrisy goes away, and they say, yeah, what I did was really unfair. If we give them 30 seconds to rationalize it, they do, and suddenly their own behavior gets whitewashed. If you ask them why, they'll say things like, well, you know, normally I would have flipped the coin, but today I, I really was worried about getting to an appointment, or or my favorite is one said, well, you know, the guy out in the hall who's gonna get it next, he looked like an engineering guy, and I really think he'd like to do those logic problems that were long. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, what, what's happening is we all have that pang of guilt, that automatic response, and if we allow ourselves to rationalize it away we will but
4: that's a case where our first emotion is one of guilt and mm-hmm. you know chastising ourselves which is appropriate in in this case because we cheated in this in this exercise And if you give it enough time, then the rationale kicks in and then we explain away our behavior. Mm -hmm. But many times emotion, our first emotion, it may not be a positive emotion. It may be a negative emotion. In that Mm -hmm. case, rational thought prevents us from destructive behavior. So sometimes rational thought is what saves us from ourselves.
6: That's absolutely right. I mean, what I argue is on both a lot of morality, what it really comes down to is, combating what's good for me in the moment versus what's good for me in the long term. So in the moment, if I borrow money or steal money from you, I'm ahead. But if long term you find out about this or I don't pay you back if it's a loan, my reputation is going to be sullied. No one's going to want to interact with me and long term there's a problem. And so it is clearly the case that sometimes we have emotional impulses that make us act in immoral ways to satisfy short-term needs and, and cognition pulls us back But it can also work the other way. So, for example, we do work in my lab where we induce people to feel gratitude. And when they feel the emotion gratitude, they behave in ways that are much more pro-social. They will spontaneously help other people even people to whom they're not feeling grateful at the moment, just because they're feeling, if I'm feeling grateful to you for helping me, I might help Seth next, even though he didn't do anything for me. But that emotion gratitude pushes me to help. It pushes me to make financial decisions that are more egalitarian. It pushes me to act more trust in a trustworthy way. It even encourages me to have uh, more patience. Well, I wonder if you could say more about the role of gratitude. Do you mean
4: something beyond count your blessings and be happy and therefore go on and, and be happy and treat others well? Or is it, is it a little bit more subtle than that, the way that it
6: works? Well, I definitely don't mean be happy because one thing we know when people are feeling just happy is that's a very rewarding state. And what it tends to do is make us focus more on keeping that, that pleasure going, which tends to focus us on more immediate rewards. And so when I talk about the power of gratitude, what we always do is we induce people to feel gratitude either by having them count their blessings or we set up situations in our lab where something befalls them that somebody else helps them with to make them feel grateful. And we compare the results to situations where they're just feeling happy. And And what we find is that when they feel grateful, so if, if you helped me and then I have the opportunity to help you afterward. So let, let's say in, in my lab you're working on this gosh awful task and it crashes and you have to start from the beginning and another subject comes over and and helps you by design, we rig it this way, you're going to feel grateful to that person. And if you then help that person, you encounter that person again, you know, 20 minutes later, outside the lab, it's a setup, and you help them, you might say, well, okay, maybe the person feels that they owe them. But what we show is anybody you encounter who asks for help, while you're feeling grateful, you will devote more effort to help them. You will treat them more fairly you will show more patience and less consumerism. We've tested this in lots of ways. And That's exactly the opposite than if we just make you feel happy. So it sounds as though
4: if you're happy, you want to preserve the status quo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are the conditions that are making my life go well right now. Let's not change anything. Let's not rock the exactly. boat. But if you're feeling gratitude... It orients
6: you socially, yeah. what it does is it allows you to accept short-term costs for longer-term gain. And in a social species like ours, a lot of short-term costs mean I'm going to exert time, effort, money, whatever it may be to help you. In the long term, I'll receive the benefits from that. You know, there's this idea that that Robert Trivers came up with uh, in evolutionary biology called reciprocal altruism, right? which would solve the puzzle of, why would people ever help people to whom they're not related if the selfish gene really drives behavior? And what he showed is that the reason people do this is because what they receive back in the aggregate is very adaptive for them. Now, he himself suggested that it was going to be moral emotional responses that drove this pro-social behavior. There wasn't any evidence at the time, but what we found with emotions like gratitude and compassion is exactly that. These emotions make us see ourselves as as connected with a larger social group and encourage us to sacrifice in the moment to build our social capital.
4: So I want to to push you on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And couldn't you say that um, even if we are pushed to be socially oriented and driven by a kind of ethical behavior, that in some ways we're really still looking out for ourselves. So for for example, in the example that you gave with the money, um, if I give you some money and you say thanks and then you run away and I never see you again. You've helped yourself in the short run, but in the long run, you and I are, you know, we're not friends anymore. Um, So you want to stay my friend, but the reason you want to stay my friend is that you want to preserve a, a relationship and perhaps your connection to the community so that benefits you, but not necessarily so that it benefits me or anyone else. So is there such a thing as true compassion towards other people?
6: Yeah. Now you're getting to to deep philosophical questions. I think, I mean, the the framework that I work from is that the reason we behave altruistically is because ultimately it does better ourselves, right? I mean, ultimately we're doing this because we are gaining from it. Uh, And so it still is the selfish gene view, but, you know, I don't want to get into the debate of does that mean it's truly altruistic? At some point it becomes a definitional issue and not a scientific issue. For me, though, the reason that I am sacrificing in the moment to benefit other people in the group is to accrue those aggregate benefits that I'll get in the future from them helping me when I need it. And so, yeah, it it is selfish in, in that sense, but it's designed to actually increase the prosociality of the group because these things begin to start spreading. If I start paying it forward to other people because I'm feeling grateful, they'll start paying it forward, and what you can suddenly do is raise the overall level of cooperation within a group. Now, it's never going to be 100%. That would be evolutionarily unstable. The pressure for somebody to come in and cheat would be dramatic. But what it can do is nudge up the average level of, of moral or pro-social behavior in societies.
4: Well, finally, David, would you make the case that the pursuit of sci- scientific pursuit and, and rational pursuits are just that, logical and rational and devoid of emotion?
6: I think the benefit of rationality comes in that it can be more contextually sensitive. Right? When we have an emotional response, it's been tuned by millennia of evolution and by the culture that we grew up in. And it tends to push us to behave in a certain way. Rationality is a lot more flexible, right? We have control over it. We can have some insight into it. And so um, it's allows us to fine-tune things. The mistake we make sometimes though is that we assume it's objective and unbiased. And we all know that some of the some of the worst atrocities that have ever been, you know, happened in in, in human society have happened through rationalization and justification. So if we recognize the powers and the tools of each, we can use them in a in hopefully a, a complementary way. I think science tends to be more objective because we have these rules about how we should evaluate things. But scientists are passionate people. And I'll tell you, when I conduct experiments, I'm hoping something comes out. I have a hunch that something will come out. I'll feel badly if it doesn't come out. And that informs my kind of persistence and perseverance. Now, the trick, of course, is to make sure that those emotions don't blind us or affect our scientific investigation. But so, too, can it affect our our rational analysis. You know, we can talk ourselves into saying, well, this experiment that didn't confirm my hypothesis, I think here's a reason why it might be wrong. You know, uh, a scientist are human, and so they're subject to emotion and cognitive biases in the same way anybody else is, no matter what they'll tell you.
4: Well, David, thank you so much for speaking with us. And, and what emotion are you feeling right now? Maybe
6: relief? <laughs> no, I'm feeling I'm feeling gratitude. I'm I'm just happy <laughs> to have this chance to talk with you.
1: David Desteno is a psychologist at Northeastern University and the author of The Truth About Trust.
4: Well, it sounds like we're on track to be better and better, but is all our hard work destined to become irrelevant? Some say we'll have to reboot and create an ethical system from scratch when important moral decisions are made not by humans, but by their silicon successors. The case for moral machines, next
1: It's Morals Law on Big Picture Science.
6: From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Well, the improvement of humanity may be on an upward arc, either due to rational thought or emotion-driven self-control. But maybe it's all for naught.
4: In the future, the decision of whether to take in a lame dog, help an elderly person cross the road, or even intervene in matters of life and death may no longer be made by humans.
5: My name is Colin Allen. I'm a professor of history and philosophy of science and cognitive science at Indiana University, and I study whether we can make machines more ethical.
1: We can't say that your floor-sweeping Roomba is an ethical machine, and you may wonder whether it will ever require moral agency. Imagine it refusing to vacuum up cake crumbs on principle, deciding that if you broke your diet, you should face your own mess. But the machines that help us do simple tasks or even make complicated financial transactions
4: are becoming ever more sophisticated. And some of them autonomous. Cars are now making more decisions on their own, deciding when to brake, for example. And companies are famously testing self-driving cars. Service robots are being developed that you could leave alone with elderly Aunt Bessie to look after her.
1: Colin Allen is the co-author of Moral Machines. Teaching robots right from wrong. And he addresses everything from software to military drones to those familiar humanoid looking robots we call androids.
5: Yeah, well, there are two reasons to make human form or android robots, really. One is, of course, they're pre-adapted then to our environments. We've built environments around our own particular body form, and robots which uh, have those capabilities, such as going up and down stairs, are going to be more useful, say, than wheeled robots, which require special surfaces to do that. At the same time, climbing upstairs is not something that has been fully mastered by robots at this point. It's surprising, in fact, how simple things that we take for granted turn out to be quite hard from a robotics point of view. The other reason to go more human form is in terms of human-robot interactions. So the idea is that you're going to just step over Roomba, the, you know, your vacuum cleaning robot. It's just a little circular thing buzzing around on the floor. You can't have much of a relationship with that. But if it takes on human qualities, then you're going to have a more cooperative sort of engagement possible. It's
1: your thesis that future versions of these uh, robots will need to be taught the rules of moral behavior. Why? I mean, what kind of decisions will everyday bots have to make that require moral behavior? Well, there's a number of
5: scenarios in which that could come true. But I think one, for example, concerns autopilots and airplanes. And, you know, we had this recent tragedy of a German pilot flying a plane into the side of a mountain. And that's a case where, in fact, the machine was quite capable of computing that had this course been followed through, this disaster would have occurred and could have rejected that command. And I'm not the only person to have suggested this, but I think it's an obvious application of the technology that we already have. I also think that there are other cases where, perhaps a bit more fanciful, but as we get these autonomous cars increasingly in our environment, there are going to be small things and big things. So etiquette at four-way stop signs, you know, we expect a certain degree of politeness. We regard some behavior as rude or unethical in those circumstances, and we want the machines to be as human-like as possible in those interactions. At the same time, avoiding accidents, maybe, and this is the bit more fanciful side of things, there are going to be situations where there are only bad outcomes, and the machine has to compute which is the least bad outcome, and take into account factors that might not just be counting the sort of physical situation but also thinking about well is it an old person or a young person who's going to be more affected here for
1: instance but isn't there a difference between i don't know moral behavior and harmless or inoffensive behavior well of course we'll try to build robots that don't harm us even you know industrial robots welding together cars you don't want them to hurt you but what additional morality do they really need i mean not cheated cards what <laughs> Well, actually, we do want software that doesn't cheat on the stock
5: market, for instance, which is another place where there's increasing automation and steps being taken to try to restrict it. But I think even in a situation where it looks like just a harm issue, there are moral dimensions of some of these decisions, which at the moment are completely within the hands of the designers. But if the designers can't anticipate every possible situation, then some of that needs to be built into the machine. So, for example... If you have a choice between doing two things which are going to be respecting a right of privacy versus a demand to treat a patient with respect or with their best welfare in mind, then those things sometimes compete against each other. They sometimes trade off. And so a machine that's tasked with that is going to have to be able to figure out what, in fact,
1: is the balance in any particular situation. Well, many years ago, it's been at least a half century, I think, Isaac Asimov, the famous writer, gave us three laws of robotics in a short story. Maybe you could remind us what those are, but tell us whether they're still relevant today. Maybe that's all we need. Well, I think they are relevant, but we also have to recognize that they were introduced by
5: Asimov as a plot device. So the three laws are, first, don't harm humans, second, obey humans, third, protect yourself, meaning the robot, and they're arranged hierarchically. So don't harm humans is the primary goal, then follow instructions, then look after yourself. Asimov himself recognized that this was a fictional device in the very first story, Runaround, in which he introduced these. He sets up a conflict between two of the rules, and the robot literally ends up going around in circles, hence runaround. But There are situations where I think those kinds of considerations may well be adequate. So in this case uh, that I mentioned earlier with the German wings disaster, the machine followed the pilot's order. So you could treat that as obeying the second directive, but actually had no uh, way of with its software computing that that was actually going to result in much harm to humans, therefore violating the
1: first law. Well, is that a tractable problem? I mean, can you really... Ever teach a robot right from wrong? Can you say, you know, if A, then do B and so on? Can moral behavior in the end be described algorithmically?
5: Yeah. So what you're suggesting here, which is we should be able to or we would need to be able to come up with a set of rules and apply that, as you said, algorithmically top down in a way that says these are the principles, follow those. But actually, I think the way in which we learn ethics is often much more bottom-up. So you learn in certain situations that this is acceptable or not, or that this leads to outcomes that people are upset about or not. And often, that's done without explicit statement of the rules. Now, in humans, we have a very interesting case where we have a sort of hybrid system. And so in the book that I did, Moral Machines, Uh, with my co-author, Wendell Wallach, we talked about the need for a hybrid system with robots as well. So the idea is that the machine should have some kind of top-down principles, but those are not gonna be sufficient to compute all of the possible outcomes, nor are they tractable in any real situation. It takes a lot of computing. But they should also have these bottom-up capabilities of being able to adjust to circumstances
1: on the basis of experience. Well, I think as a kind of a naive outsider, I would say, hey, look, just keep humans in the loop. Don't let them make any really serious decisions like, you know, should I keep flying the plane in the direction of this mountain over here or not? Uh, just, just have humans finally, you know, decide. Is, isn't that possible? Well,
5: it's possible. But first, the human might not be the person you want to have in the loop, as the pilot example shows, right? And also, humans are slower in some respects than machines, not in every respect, but in some respect. This is why the algorithmic trading systems have such an advantage on the stock market, for instance. They can do things far quicker than any person can. So I think we're going to see situations, even with driving cars and so on, and this is After all, what's behind the anti-lock braking systems where the machine actually – we want the machine to take the human out of the loop because
1: the human will make worse decisions being slower. We heard earlier in the show about the role that emotion plays in human ethical decision-making. Anger, for example, motivates us to fight for our rights. Compassion may drive us to treat others humanely. Can you build a machine to make ethical decisions if that machine has no emotions?
5: So I think that there are limits to what you can do without emotions. And I'm fully on board with the idea that sometimes emotions are good things from an ethical point of view. There is such a thing as righteous anger after all. But also we know that emotions sometimes get in the way of making good decisions. So it's going to be a balance. Uh, Sometimes the emotionless machine will do better than the humans and sometimes not. And we need to manage that that set of possibilities. I will say, however, that I think in the long run, there's no barrier technologically to having machines that have emotions. I don't think that this is coming anytime soon, but I do think that once we understand more about our own
1: responses to situations, those can be implemented in machines. Well, I think that might be particularly applicable in the case of military robots. It's true, we don't have robots yet that look like the Terminator, although here in California we had a governor who kind of resembled one. Mm-hmm. But, but we certainly have drones. They're in the news all the time. Unmanned aerial vehicles capable of autonomous fight and autonomous flight. Tell us what drones are able to do now and what they're programmed to do and why you're concerned about these things. Well... There's a lot of discussion about drones and they have a lot of capabilities
5: and one real question is whether all these capabilities have yet been put together in one package. But we know, even from outside drones, that military aircraft can acquire targets. So the software can determine this is a target and lock onto it. In a fighter jet, the pilot then has the autonomy usually to push the fire button once the target is acquired. But the pilot is not controlling the actual targeting. And, of course, with drones, uh, we have the capability of them flying around in airspace on their own without direct human intervention, although... As they're currently controlled, as I understand it by the U.S. military, they're flown out of a base in Nevada and there's, there are humans in control of that machine. But the autopilots could nevertheless take over that kind of functionality. So if you put all those pieces together in a drone, you'd have an autonomously navigating, target-acquiring, firing system. I don't think that that's actually being deployed anywhere. I actually think it would be a bad idea to deploy it. I think we should urge that there would be a human in that loop
1: for the indefinite future. But Colin, that uh, that addresses the question of military robots. I mean, those are the ones that, that scare everyone. But what about your household helper? Finally, a robot that can make the beds or whatever. Uh, you know, moral agency is important there. And any fears? Well, I think a lot of people are worried that increasingly
5: our interactions with machines are destroying a kind of human-to-human contact. We see this with cell phones and smartphones, after all, and the internet. People are worried that it's breaking down normal human relationships. That's an empirical question, of course, how bad that is. I think there's a lot of doomsaying about it. I think there's a lot of people who would not want to go back, though, to the situation where we didn't have these gadgets around. Now, insofar as dealing with machines instead of people goes, I tend to be a little bit more optimistic than some, I think here, because I think that, for one, interactions with the machines are going to be better when they are more human-like. That is, there's a worry that by dealing with robots, we will subjugate our own humanity, if you like. But the drive, as I see it, is actually to get machines which enable us to do more of the things that we actually value, and rather than profoundly changing those values. But it is I'll completely mid a matter of perspective here. I think there are some people who think we've already gone too far down
1: that road. Colin, what if the question is not, can we train robots to make the moral decisions made by humans now, but can robots be trained to be more ethical than humans? I mean, maybe they'll surpass us in that. Uh, We'll have robots on the Supreme Court or something. I mean, is that possible? And what would that world look like if it came to pass? Yeah, I... It's a difficult question because I think that there are actually some ethical issues which are
5: really intractable. That is, I don't think that there will ever be ways of resolving certain kinds of values which come into conflict with each other. No further way to say this one value is more important than that one. So there will always be ethical disputes, and I don't think robots are going to solve that problem for us. At the same time, I think we have a worry about machines being able to compute things much faster than us and maybe being smarter than us, and there are all these worries about being taken over, therefore, by the machines. If that's in the future, I don't think it's as close as some people seem to think it is. I think it's a a, a lot further down the road, and we will be able to see it coming. It's not going to happen overnight, is my view of that. As for whether we would have robots on the Supreme Court, for instance, I think in some sense we already have technological assist on the Supreme Court. I mean I've not been to watch them, but already the justices are have always been dependent on a bunch of law clerks who provide all sorts of information to them. And that's all supported by machines which enable them to rapidly retrieve cases and so on. So why not bring that into the courtroom itself at relevant points where instead of having a question about whether there's any legal precedent for this, pull up the legal precedents, right? So, yes, I see more and more gadgetry perhaps coming into those situations. I'm, I think it's a long way off, though, before we can imagine a robot actually replacing a justice. And, and I think there's lots of ways in which we might
1: prevent that from happening. Colin Allen, thank you so very much for speaking with us. You're very welcome. Thank you.
4: Colin Allen is a professor of history and philosophy of science and cognitive science at Indiana University, and he is the co-author of Moral Machines, Teaching Robots Right from Wrong. Well, do you think he's right? One day we'll have a Ruth Bader Ginsbot on the Supreme Court? (laughs)
1: Well, that's that's kind of an interesting idea, but they wouldn't be motivated by the things that seem to motivate our moral behavior. I mean, we've heard about emotions being part of that and rationality being, well, only part of it, but part of it. But maybe the machines are not interested in either one of those. Maybe they have a morality that really transcends all the kind of morality we encounter in humans.
4: It's formed by something other than emotion and rationality. There'll be some other kind of agency that is programmed into the machines?
1: Yeah, they may have some other metric for moral behavior, you know, don't violate the laws of physics. I mean, who knows what? You know, I wouldn't want to have that kind of moral behavior from my neighbors, but maybe the machines would have some some concept of morality that's so divorced from our own that uh, you know, we either think it doesn't apply or we just slavishly obey it. <laughs>
4: Thanks to the morally advanced talent that helped produce this show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
1: Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky, David, and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
4: Your ears have been attuned to Morals Law. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find it on our archive on our website, BigPictureScience.org.
1: If you're a podcast listener but you prefer listening to over the air radio because use of the airwaves is morally superior, check the listing on our website of radio stations that. Can the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show.
4: Oh, and do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Well, throw in some faint praise and email it all to BigPictureScience at SETI.org.
3: Now, I understand that manufacturing led to worker exploitation and that cotton is now a protected species, but I have to say I do miss wearing clothes.
1: Yeah, I'm with you on that. Hey, can we go inside? I'm freezing.